Well, good morning once again. Go ahead and get settled in for a time in God's Word. Thank you, Grant, and thank you, Anna, for leading us this morning. I trust that you're all out there somewhere. Uh, I wish I could see you, uh, but I know you can see me on your screens right now, and hopefully you're engaged and ready to go. So if you were with us last Sunday at our final uh, time at Pico Canyon Elementary, we were blessed to put a temporary bow on that preaching series in the Minor Prophets, and today we now get to dive into something wholly new, to, uh, to begin our countdown to Easter Sunday, which, if you can believe it, is just three weeks away on April the 12th. Now, there's a lot that we want to accomplish between, uh, between now and then. And with Easter coming into view, the thing that I want you guys to think about this morning is, is we're beginning to turn towards Jerusalem, towards the city of God, and toward this very significant moment that we read about in Matthew chapter 20. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. It says, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and on the third day he will will be raised up. Think about that for a second. What a prophecy. What we have in just those three verses is essentially a table of contents for the entire Passion Week, from the day that Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem to his resurrection. And so in that vein, this morning, I want to focus on a very specific set of questions that start us down that path towards the cross. Here's what they are. Number one, why had Jesus become such a problem for the religious authorities of Israel? For what reason and for what purpose were these recognized spiritual leaders of Israel willing to intentionally scheme to murder Jesus all under the watchful eye of God. It must have been a pretty compelling reason if they were willing to do such a wicked thing. And I think we're going to find the answers in scripture here today. And then next week, Adam is going to be here and he's going to dive into the text a little bit more. What we want to do is examine how Jesus saw this moment in his life as he was uh, heading towards Jerusalem, as he looked forward and saw the, uh, the cross looming in his future. So what was the Son of Man thinking and feeling in that moment? So uh, as you can see by the sign this behind us, there it is, we've titled this preaching series, The Immutable Christ. And we should just pause for a second and just praise God for this truth. Our God does not change. He does not change. That's what the word immutable means. Technically, theologically, it means the changelessness of the divine persons in all their perfection. And we read about this truth all over scripture, both Old Testament, New Testament. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Malachi 3.6, God says himself, for I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So let me ask you this, in this time of chaos and confusion that we find ourselves in with this virus spreading all over the world, where we can barely keep up with the pace of the news as it comes at us, tell me if you're not uh, really, really glad for these things. A, that God is on his throne. B, that God never changes. C, that nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ. And D, that not one part of his plan, not one of his purposes, and not one of his promises will ever change or fail. 
I'm going to assume you're giving an amen out there. That was the amen moment for the uh, introduction. So I'm assuming, there you go. I'm assuming you're doing it out there in your homes this morning. So let's dive in as we ask this question again. This is really the big idea for this morning. Why was Jesus so hated by the religious authorities? Well, first, let's take a moment just to remind ourselves who we're talking about. Who were these religious leaders? Well, the Gospels appear to divide them up into four basic categories. We have our Pharisees, we have our scribes, we have our Sadducees, and we have this group known as the chief priests. Let me break it down for you just a little bit. The name Pharisee comes from a word that means to be separate. And never was there a word that was more aptly given to a particular group of people. Separatism is what the Pharisees were all about. Separate from sinners, separate from Gentiles, separate in every way. Now, historically, the Pharisees grew out of a group that we call the Hasidim, or the pious ones, the holy ones. And these were Jews who, during the intertestamental period, fought with great passion against the encroachment of Greek culture into the land, into Jewish life. They wanted to keep Judaism distinct. And they became a big part of sparking what we call the Maccabean Revolt that took place 165 years before the time of Christ. Now, eventually, the Hasidim split into into two groups. First, the Essenes, who completely withdrew uh, from public life and set up their own rigid community down by the, the Dead Sea, and the Pharisees, who stayed in the public eye, but then took on the mantle of preserving the law through a rigorous holiness code, which they then imposed upon all the people. So they were much more connected to the common man in Israel than the Sadducees were, partly because they were spread out all over the land from from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, but also because they were the primary teachers in the synagogue. So they had, the Pharisees, had a great influence in the day-to-day lives of the people. Now, the scribes were an interesting bunch. The scribes were not a religious party per se, although many of them were Pharisees. They were a class of professionals who were well-educated and well-paid for their services. Uh, Sometimes we talk about them being the seminary professors of the day. They were the most skilled men when it came to interpreting the law. So when we see Jesus often confronting the religious authorities of Israel, oftentimes it's the scribes who are most aggressive at challenging him. The third group, the Sadducees, grew out of the Maccabean Revolt as well. They came from the ranks of the priesthood And they formed, after the Jews wrested control of the temple, away from the Greeks. And the Sadducees were the elite class in Jewish society. Very wealthy, very connected, and almost exclusively tied to Jerusalem and to the temple system. So the Sadducees controlled the office of high priest. They dominated the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body that operated in the land under the watchful eye of Rome. They were incredibly corrupt. You need to know that incredibly corrupt. And unlike the Pharisees, they welcomed Greek Greek culture into the land. They would do whatever they had to in terms of relationships with Gentiles if it meant accumulating more power and more wealth. Finally, that leaves one group, what scripture calls the chief priests. And these were the most dominant force on the Sanhedrin. The chief priests were drawn from the extended family of the high priest. They were incredibly powerful. The high priest himself presided over the council, so all the chief priests were also members of what we call the Sadducee party. So that's the background. These are the type of men that Jesus is confronting in, in his three years of ministry as he's going from Galilee to Samaria to Judea and back and forth. So grab your Bibles. You're out there. I know you got your Bibles with you. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. 
What we're going to do is talk about five reasons why Jesus had become such a problem for these religious leaders. Five reasons. Here's the first one. He didn't practice their brand of separatism. Jesus did not practice their brand of separatism. Matthew 9, verse 9, if you look there, and we're going to read some familiar, we're going to be in Matthew and John this morning. It'll be some familiar passages, but we'll break them down. Matthew 9, 9 says this, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. And where was Matthew? He was sitting in the tax collector's booth. And so here's a man who was a tax collector. And if you were a social climber in first century Israel, uh, being a tax collector was a coveted position because it was very, very lucrative. If that is, you were willing to make some compromises. Number one, you were willing to defile yourself by doing business with the Romans. And if you were willing to become basically a pariah in the Jewish community and be completely barred from entering the synagogue. So that's what it took to be a tax collector. You were compromising for a price. So Matthew would have been exactly the type of man that the Pharisees despised and rejected and said, we must be separate from. And yet look what we see the Lord doing. Jesus calls this Matthew to his side. And in the process of that, he calls him out of that old lifestyle to walk away from this compromise in his life, to walk away from the idol, which is making money. So be honest now. By the way, look what it says here. Jesus said to him, follow me. That's, that's what that entails, this idea of following. It's leaving the past behind and making Jesus Lord and Savior. And it says, Matthew got up and followed him. Now, I want you to be honest for just a second because a little bit later, I'm going to ask you to step into the Pharisee's sandals and try to understand where they were coming from. Be honest. Can you see why self-proclaimed keepers of the law would be concerned about Jesus putting a man like Matthew on his ministry team? Probably. But this was Jesus's pattern. He calls the simple to his side. He shows concerns for the outcasts of society, the very types of people that the Pharisees said, no thanks that the Pharisees said holy men should not be anywhere near. Fishermen, tax collectors, lepers, Gentiles, women, even zealots. And to the Pharisees, this was simply unacceptable. And then it gets worse if we go on to Matthew 9. Look at verse 10. It says, And it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, and this is probably Matthew's house, what Matthew's done is now that he's following Jesus, he invites Jesus to come over to his house to to spend time with some of his old friends. It says, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And here's our guys. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, interesting, they don't say to Jesus, they say to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? Guys, it must not have been easy for these men who were so steeped in their history, so steeped in their tradition, so steeped in their version of holiness to see a teacher like Jesus doing this. This would have been very shocking and confusing. Verse 12, but when Jesus heard this, he said, is it not those who are healthy who need a physician? It is not those, sorry, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I love Jesus's answer. Notice how he starts with making a statement of reason, of logic. He essentially says, look, sin is a disease, and I'm here with the cure. So naturally, if I have the cure, I'm going to be among those who need a doctor. Makes sense. But Jesus knows his audience. He knows the Pharisees, and he knows that logic alone won't satisfy them. So he turns to scripture to bolster his argument, and he quotes 
Guess what he quotes? A minor prophet. Uh, you guys should all remember this. He quotes Hosea. Now, what's the context of Hosea? It was only a few weeks ago. Remember, Israel in Hosea's day is deeply engaged in false worship. Everything is external. They love to make a big show about their sacrifice, but their lives betray who they really worship. And so God says through Hosea back in that day, stop it. I am sick of your burnt offerings. What I want is your hearts. And so Jesus, by quoting Hosea, says to the Pharisees, go and learn this. By the way, that would have hurt. The Pharisees were not used to being instructed. He says, go and learn what God meant in the days of Hosea and now apply it to yourselves. I don't want your ritual sacrifice. I want eleos in the Greek. I want mercy, kindness, the type of mercy and kindness you would show to people like tax collectors who are suffering from a disease, the disease of sin. And so imagine the word goes out among the Pharisees, this this rebel teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, not only refuses to separate himself from the worst of society, but now he has the audacity to try to instruct us. So that's reason number one. Reason number two for their intense hatred of Jesus is this. They viewed him as a threat to the stability of their nation. They viewed Jesus as a threat to the stability of their nation. Guys, when you study the history of Israel, one of the things that stands out is just how long Israel existed under the thumb of foreign governments, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And in history, you find a flip side to this idea of oppression. On the other side of oppression is always rebellion. So Israel has this long history of revolutionaries and revolts in Israel. And by the way, how many times has a Jewish rebellion actually worked? One time, one time only the Maccabean revolt. Other than that, revolution has always ended up being a bloody disaster for the Jews. But in the days of Jesus, the Maccabean revolt is not that far in the past. So the spirit of the Maccabees was definitely alive and well. That's why we have the zealots in the New Testament. And the members of the Sanhedrin were very, very aware of the simmering tension throughout the land. And they saw it as their duties to be the ones who could maintain social stability. Turn over to John the book of John, chapter 11. So we're going from Matthew over to John. John chapter 11, and look at verse 45. I want to give you an example of this. You know the story. The context is this is right after the miraculous raising of Lazarus. John chapter 11, verse 45. What we're going to see is two very different reactions from people who were there that day that saw this incredible miracle. A man raised from the dead. Can you imagine? But in that crowd, there are two very different types of people. Those who see the miracle and believe, and those who see it and yet remain spiritually blind. Verse 45 says this, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. Praise God, right? They believed in him. But some of them, and these are the snitches, some of them, they went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. They run to their masters to inform them that Jesus has become this growing danger. Verse 47, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees, so now we see these groups coming together, they convened a council. Now they should be thrilled that God is working miracles through this man from Galilee, but instead they're more concerned about calling an emergency meeting to try to figure him out. It says, and they were saying, what are we doing 
For this man is performing many signs. Interesting, they cannot deny that these are very real miracles. And by the way, wouldn't you think in that moment that they would reassess their opinion of Jesus if the miracles are real? But no. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now they don't believe that many will believe in him as we think of it in a redemptive sense. Here's what they mean. They mean if we don't do something about this guy, if we don't step in and shut him down, then all of these uneducated, gullible people out there are going to start following him, and then we're going to have a giant problem on our hands. That's basically what's going on here. The fear is, is that this Jesus will keep gaining followers and that someday he's going to lead an insurrection. Again, that simmering tension of rebellion. And of course, that would destabilize the government. That would immediately cause Rome to bring more uh, legions into the land and most likely cause a bloodbath in the streets. But there's something else going on. It's right under the surface. And John draws it out in verses 49 and 50. Look at 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, he's a Sadducee. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. This guy is arrogant. You know nothing. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the, rather than the whole nation perish. So there's lots in this statement, but I want you to see the two little words in the middle of verse 50. It is expedient for you. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. Expedient for you that one man die. Remember, this is a group of men who all understand what's at stake if the Romans come in and there's a revolution. They know that they are the ones who have the most to lose if the Romans crack down. So they say, let this Jesus be a scapegoat. Let him die for all of us. It's for the good of Israel. It's for the sake of the temple. And it's for our sake so that we can maintain this lifestyle which benefits all of us. That's what's going on here. Folks, here's a general truism. Whenever a ruling body doesn't answer to the people where there's no accountability, the primary use of their authority will always be to ensure that they stay in authority. That's just human nature, and that's true of the Sanhedrin here. Now, we'll finish up, drop down to verse 53. It says, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. And the better translation there is they resolved to kill him. They would remove this threat to their nation and they would remove this threat that was now putting their seats of power at risk. And under the direction of the high priest, this is very important, that decision just got made. No legal trial would be necessary. The only question now is, how do we carry out the sentence? Well, let's look at the third reason that Jesus had become a problem. Number three is this. He refused to adhere to their Sabbath regulations. He refused to adhere to their Sabbath Regulations. Now, this is hard for us to imagine as Christians, but the, the Pharisees saw Jesus as a lawbreaker. Think about that for a second. They saw him as a lawbreaker. Matthew 12 is a good example. Go over to Matthew 12. Look at verse 1. Matthew 12, verse 1. Can you imagine Jesus a lawbreaker? This is what they thought of him. Here's what it says. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath... And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, now imagine they're sort of everywhere that Jesus and his band of guys go, they're watching. They want to get him. The Pharisees saw this and they said, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do 
on the Sabbath. Guys, the Pharisees here are accusing Jesus of being a liberal. They're saying, your guys cut corners. Your guys are, are breaking the, the strictest interpretation of the law. Now, it's interesting. They don't accuse them of stealing because we know from Deuteronomy 23 that plucking a few ears of grain was permitted. Their accusation is much more general, that the law forbid any type of work on the Sabbath, including simply picking the heads of grain. Now, when you look at the Old Testament law and you look at the five books of Moses, the definition of what it means to work isn't very specific. And so predictably, the Pharisees had devised their own long list of traditions. They would be the ones to define what it meant to work on the Sabbath. And they put together this long list of traditions so that they could condemn people like the disciples. But Jesus is not having it because he doesn't recognize their traditions. Look what it says in verse 3. But Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. I love this. Jesus now is defending his disciples using scripture, and he says, have you not read? By the way, Jesus loved to do this. Have you not read? Have you not heard? He likes to sort of go up to guys who consider themselves biblically literate and, and teachers of others, and he likes to challenge them. Haven't you read this? So he points to King David. Now that's important because, of course, King David is the one who prefigures his coming, the Messiah, right? And he points to the story that all the Pharisees would have known well, how David and his men came in and they technically broke the law, but they weren't condemned because of the situ situation that they were in. Now Jesus is building a case here. Go to verse 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Of course, the Pharisees knew this to be true. The priests who are in the temple working on the Sabbath, they're working, but they're not condemned here. They're judged to be observant. So Jesus is laying out a, 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 a case of inconsistency here. But here comes the main point in verse six. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Listen now. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What an incredibly bold statement. You got to understand what Jesus is doing here. As he talks to Pharisees, he's exalting himself above their beloved temple, above the Sabbath itself, and now capable of messianically defining both of those things. Here's what he's saying. I am the greater David. I am the greater Sabbath. I am the greater temple. I am the greater priest. Now imagine how much that must have angered the Pharisees. Imagine how frustrated they would have been. How this word, this interaction must have spread like wildfire among their ranks. Does this man dare to claim equality with God? He must be removed. Now I want to I pause there for a second. I've given you three reasons why Jesus angered the religious authorities of his day. We want to make this a little bit interactive this morning. So I'm going to give you one or two minutes to consider a question. And here's what I want you to do. In just a second, I'm going to send you off to talk to somebody that you're with out there. But I want you to do this. Put yourself in the sandals of a first century Pharisee. I've tried to describe them for you this morning. So I want you to try to be one of them. And I want you to answer this question. Tell somebody you're with, which of those first three events would have caused you the most anxiety as a Pharisee? Was it A, Jesus dining with sinners? Was it B, Jesus doing public miracles? Or C, Jesus refusing to submit to the Sabbath 
regulations. Go ahead and talk amongst yourselves. Okay, hopefully you guys had some good answers to that. I want to keep going on. I saved the two biggest reasons for last. Let's look at reason number four, that Jesus had become a problem. He was a personal threat to their way of life. Jesus was a personal threat to their way of life. Now, as I shared earlier, the Pharisees had a strong association with the common man and the common woman throughout Israel. They were widely admired and their teachings were obeyed. But it's interesting, when Jesus appears on the scene, the crowds respond to him in a much different way. Obviously, they're taken by him, but there's more. When Jesus teaches, they hear in his words an authority that is new and refreshing. So again, think of yourself as an average Pharisee. What were they feeling about this so-called Jesus movement that was happening, especially up in Galilee? They would have been thinking, who is this charismatic guy? How does he draw such massive crowds? And in their hearts, they must have been thinking, and this is scary, are we losing our grip on the people? Are we losing our influence amongst the common people? And so by the time we get to John chapter 6, Jesus is on the mountainside of the Sea of Galilee, and he is preaching to 5,000 men, and who knows how many more women and children. This is what we would call in modern times an arena-sized gathering. These are huge numbers. And it seems clear that the Pharisees had become envious of Jesus and suspicious of his popularity. And the more he teaches and the more he heals, the bigger the crowds get. And the bigger the crowds get, the more they want to destroy him. And so what we see throughout the Gospels is a concerted effort to try to discredit him whenever possible. They devised all kinds of riddles and logical traps to try to, try to catch him in saying something wrong and trying to drive a wedge between himself and his followers. But as you know, time after time, Jesus eluded their schemes and he, he turned their arguments against them. And by doing so, he exposed their lack of understanding. And frankly, he embarrassed them often in front of the very crowds that they were trying to impress. So you combine all the weight of these incidents where Jesus is setting the, setting the Pharisees straight and showing the people that they don't really know what they're talking about. And you can imagine how it undermined their credibility. They're angry. They're frustrated. But the single greatest thing that threatened the power brokers of Israel takes place in the very last week of Jesus' life. Turn over to Matthew 21 now. Matthew 21, look at verse 12. 
This really is the thing that seals his fate in many ways. Matthew 21, verse 12, and you know the story. Matthew, interestingly, only gives a, two verses to it, but the implications of it are absolutely huge. Matthew 21, 12 says, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Okay, background here. The temple was an incredible source of wealth for Israel. And the primary beneficiaries of that wealth were the chief priests and the Sadducees who operated in that space. All of them received a direct contribution from the temple. And then indirectly, they received a cut from all of the vendors and all the merchants who operated in the temple courts. Why? Because they operated there by permission of the chief priests. So it's a circular uh, uh, beneficial situation. And so over the years, this, this massive commercial enterprise had grown and, and been built in the temple courts. First, there was this providing of suitable animals for the various sacrifices. Now, understand this. It was permissible for a pilgrim traveling to Jerusalem to bring his or her own animal for sacrifice, but it had to pass the inspection of the priests. And many times an animal that would be brought from far away would be rejected and so over time, pilgrims just decided it made more sense not to bring my own animal, but simply to go and purchase a temple-approved animal when they arrived in the city. So the approved animal vendors would set up shop in the temple courts, and then a cut of all of that would be sent off to the Sadducees. So think about this. What a magnificent scam. Number one, you create a need. Number two, you remove all the competition. And number three, then you meet that need at a profit. You think about it, it's both genius and wicked. But there was more. Over time, a system of commercial exchange also developed in the temple courts. The chief priests arranged for licensed money changers to exchange all the types of currency that were in circulation in that day. It had to be exchanged for what we call the orthodox shekel. And they made sure that you couldn't buy or sell in Jerusalem until you'd exchanged your currency for the shekel and so again, the average pilgrim coming to Jerusalem had no choice but to use their services. And it wasn't cheap. Historians have looked at this. They believe the tax that was levied on this foreign currency, get this, was between 30 and 40%. So think of it in terms of a dollar, 30 or 40 cents out of every dollar going back to the priest. All of this lined their pockets. So think about it. In the midst of this noisy combination of money changing happening over here and the bleeding of animals, Jesus walks into the temple courts expecting it to be a house of prayer, a place where he can teach, but it's not anything like that. And to the amazement of his apostles and to the amazement of the prideful Sadducees who were watching him, he throws over the booths of the money changers and he tosses the tables of all the animal vendors and he chases their customers out of the temple. And if you thought for a second, well, that just seems, that seems sinful to be so angry. Jesus shows those watching that what he has just done is indeed righteous, that he has a zeal for his father's house by quoting the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. Who's gonna argue with that? So what was the problem in Jesus's eyes? Well, it wasn't really just the presence of commerce in the temple that irked him. It goes much deeper. Here's why he's righteously angry. These men who claim to be the spiritual leaders of Israel were making an appalling profit from worship. They were turning the worship of God into an appalling 
profit. And worse, off the backs of the poor, off the backs of the spiritually needy, charging them obscene amounts of money to simply come and fulfill their religious obligations. So the temple had indeed become a home for thieves and robbers, but not like you would normally see them. These were thieves and robbers cloaked in the garments of piety, hypocrisy. Well, you can imagine the reaction from the chief priests and the scribes when they heard about the scene that Jesus had caused. The the uproar must have been crazy. He did what? He came into the temple courts and messed with our stuff? This was a step too far for them. Now this rebel, this Jesus was striking directly at their money-making scheme. And by extension, he was threatening their very way of life. There's no question that at this moment, the Sadducees agreed with the Pharisees that this man had to be destroyed. So that's the fourth reason. Last one, final point. Why had Jesus become a problem? Because of his claims of divine Authority. And this was really the clincher. Jesus claimed divine authority over the religious leaders. Now, the, the issue of authority goes all the way back to Matthew chapter 9. Remember when Jesus heals a paralytic and he says to him, Your sins are forgiven. And the text says that there were scribes present, the seminary professors, the smart guys. And they immediately turn to one another and they say, Wait, did I just hear that right? This guy is a blasphemer. I mean, who has the power to forgive sins? But Jesus responded by claiming authority to do that. And then to prove that he has the authority, he heals this man. Do you think this got attention? Certainly among the scribes it must have. Going back to the story we just read in Matthew 21, the cleansing of the temple. After Jesus cleanses the temple, the question that's asked of him is this. By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority is the question. And so we step back and you know what we see when we look at Jesus? He is an outsider. He is not a part of the establishment. He is a populist figure. By the way, we're, we're starting to understand that more in our politics here in America, what it looks like to, to be the establishment versus an outsider. And the people wanted Jesus, this populist. See, Jesus didn't carry the type of credentials that those scribes and those chief priests would have demanded. He didn't He wasn't on their approved list of teachers. He didn't have an impressive family line or an impressive hometown or station in life. In other words, what I'm saying is he wasn't one of them and that drove them crazy. He hadn't gone to the same schools. He hadn't been licensed or ordained by them to address the the motley crew, the rabble out there. So who gave you this authority, they asked. And then they answered. They said, well, we didn't. So who are you? So a huge goal of the Jewish authorities was to to corner Jesus into admitting that he was an irregular teacher who had never been sanctioned by the Sanhedrin, never been given approval by the powers that be, but unfortunately for them, they were never able to trap him as they wanted to. Now, one last passage, this authority question really comes to a head in Matthew 12. Go back to Matthew 12. We'll do this quickly. Matthew 12, look at verse 22. It says, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Now, you know this passage. All the crowds were amazed, and they were saying, listen, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. What a charge to make right there in the crowd. That's a gutsy charge to make. Think about when I read this story, what it sounds to me like is this is just a a reactive, poorly thought out argument, poorly thought out accusation. And I think it, 
I think they rushed it for two reasons. Number one, they were still shocked by seeing this miracle that they couldn't deny. But more importantly, second, they heard the dangerous question that was now going through the crowd. What's that question? Is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah? The Pharisees cannot let that that question hang in the air. They've got to say something. So it, to me, it's like, we got to say something. Uh, uh, well, I think he drives them out by demons. And Jesus immediately points out how silly they sound. Again, he's about to embarrass them in front of the crowds. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan... He's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Man, he just, he, tra- he traps these Pharisees and shows them their folly. But then verse 28 really is the clincher. Look at verse 28. But Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now imagine the shock. Imagine the shock. If the son of David is now speaking to you, the Messiah And if I have authority to drive out demons by the spirit of God, then take a close look. Here's the kingdom of God. Wow. So ultimately, the greatest amount of fury from the religious establishment came upon Jesus for this very reason, because of his self-identification. He claimed to be from God. He claimed God as his father. He claimed to do the same works as God. He claimed to be one with God. And ultimately, he claimed to be the Christ the very son of God. So five reasons. He's a blasphemer by that. that, If you really want to summarize it, this last point, the religious authorities saw him as a blasphemer because they couldn't see who he really was with their blind eyes. So five reasons why the recognized spiritual leaders of Israel were willing to scheme to murder, get that now, the religious leaders of Israel scheming to murder an innocent man who did nothing more than teach and heal, and love. But do you see the common thread that runs through those five things? Listen, their separatism, their nation, their interpretation, their way of life, their authority. It is all rooted in self-centeredness and pride. It's all rooted in protecting what they truly loved, which wasn't God, but their wealth and their power and their prestige. They were so blinded by all these things that they couldn't see that the Messiah that had been promised in their own scriptures was standing right in front of them all along. And so it's no wonder that Jesus pronounced a series of woes upon them. He called them hypocrites. He called them blind guides. And worse, he leaves them with this statement of divine judgment from Matthew 23. Listen to this. He says, you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Friends, this is the question that every single person who will ever walk the earth has to address. Will you submit to Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah? Will you bow your knee to him by faith? Or in your stubborn pride, will you try to stand on your own? Will you try to accumulate everything you can in this world? And be satisfied in that, but not for all eternity. If the latter, the question hangs in the air, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Jesus made it clear, he who who is not with me 
is against me. So my parting words to you this morning, as we begin to look to the cross, we begin to look to Easter, is choose this day wisely, my friend. Will you pray with me?